0: Hey there, folks, it's me, Michael Bach, your Diversity Dude, and this is Talking to Canadians. This is my first attempt at a podcast, and just like my marriage, I don't know what I'm doing and have taken absolutely no advice. So let the adventures begin. This podcast is all about the wonderful, wild, wacky world of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. This is my passion, it's my life's work, and it's what pays the bills. Every episode, I'll sit down with someone to talk about their life and their lived experience. It's an opportunity for you, the listener, to be a fly on the wall in someone else's life without having to break into their house and do creepy things. The topic will change from one episode to the next, and it will be based on whoever the heck I want to talk to because it's my podcast. If you don't like that, get your own podcast. Jeez. So let's get this party started with the premiere Of talking to Canadians. Today I thought, you know what would be fun? Talking about racism. Everyone's favorite topic, just like death and taxes. But today's racism pales in comparison to the racism in the 1950s. Or does it? That's an assumption that we have, that it was so much worse back then. But was it really? I suspect if you were to ask some of the people that live with racism today, you might find that they don't feel like things have gotten much better. So today I go to the source, or one source. I sit down with Renee Basil jones Renee is African-American and grew up under segregation in the 1950s in a suburb of St. Louis, Missouri. In the 1980s, she moved to Toronto. Now, in interest of full disclosure, Renee and I have known each other for quite some time, and she works as a facilitator delivering training on diversity and inclusion, including working for CCDI. But the truth of the matter is, I don't know a lot of people that actually lived under segregation. Renee has a very unique perspective in that she has faced issues of racism in her personal life and at the same time works professionally in the area of diversity and inclusion, working to address issues of racism in society. So here's my conversation with Renee Basil Jones. So Renee, You're an African-American woman. You grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, during segregation, and you now live in Toronto, where you've lived for over 30 years. Let's talk about it.
1: Oh, I'd be delighted. Um, I was actually born in a suburb of St. Louis called Webster Groves. I'm the second child and only girl in my family with three brothers. So we have a very mixed background, as you can imagine. It's a combination of West African, French, and indigenous Cherokee with a bit of Irish thrown in just to make it more interesting. So I went to an all-Black grade school that had a really storied history, an integrated junior high and high school, uh, both of which had an emphasis on academics. So there was no question starting out early on in terms of education that uh, students were expected to excel just on the basis of race and the positioning. So I was born in the 50s, so the U.S. was still very much a segregated place. Uh, I went to what was considered at the time the best high school in the U.S. Uh, In fact, CBS did um, a story on my high school called 16 in Webster Groves, and I highly recommend it to people because it will give you a snapshot of what it was like to be a part of sort of an integrated community, but again, very much uh, the idea of how do we separate based on class.
0: So thank you for that. That's, uh, you know, Quite an interesting context, particularly for those of us in Canada that uh, certainly in my part of the central Canada didn't have that experience. What are your earliest memories or experiences of segregation? Like what, what do you, what sticks out for you? I think that
1: most sticks out for me is not learning to swim as a child. You know, there's a sort of (laughs) ongoing joke about Black people not being able to swim. Exactly what I
0: was thinking about.
1: (laughs) But the truth of the matter is, uh, we weren't allowed to go to the community swimming pool. So um, at that time, there weren't the resources to build our own swimming pool. So my parents really spent time explaining the rules of the society that we were in, where I could go, who I could talk to. But that crystallization of not being able to swim is really a, a memory that will live on with me. And, you know, the only thing I could think of at the time was that it just wasn't fair. Like why could everybody else go to that swimming pool? And I couldn't. Of course.
0: Yeah. It, it I, I do uh, think a lot about that, that myth, but the, the, people from black Afro-Caribbean heritage can't swim. And it's, and that, I guess that's where it comes from is that. Yeah, that, absolutely. The segregation. Yeah. And how further did segregation affect your family? I mean, you, you, you mentioned having the talk, which every black f- parent has had with their child, but uh, how did it affect your family? Well, it's interesting because it had minimal
1: impact Um just simply based on the fact that I lived in North Webster, and it was a community of mutual support. So when I think about it now, um, I had such great role models growing up. So all the professionals in my community, doctors, lawyers, or black, and so those were my role models. Um, it was interesting when you think about the idea of being in the context of a segregated society. My dad, who was the oldest son in his family, was adopted in quotations, by a white man who really supported him, and made him a part of his family and a part of his business. So I grew up with my dad you know uh, being uh, eventually being a part owner in this business and having a white grandfather, mm, if you will, yeah. considering all the mixes in my family. My other relatives all worked uh, there was no question of that. Uh, two of my aunts had their own businesses, um, both my grandmothers worked as domestics uh, my grandfather worked as a janitor janitor in the high school, so I think you know when you think about the impact of this, I was fortunate enough to be really sort of insulated because, you know, people make the old joke about, you know, what's it like to have to ride at the back of a bus? I didn't have to. My family had cars. I think the other influence here is really shadism. Um, When you think about the combination of groups that make up who I am, um, my family wasn't in quote unquote, too black in coloring. Mm -hmm. And I think that made a difference in terms of levels of acceptance.
0: Of course and and for the listening audience uh, your lighter skin is that fair to say, yeah, 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 and that does make a difference
1: oh yeah, it, it absolutely does I mean, unfortunately, I think it's still there are tenses of that still today, but at that time, um, it really was about the idea of people telling you, uh, particularly white people telling you that um because of the coloring of your, of your skin, you were lucky and so happy that you're not too dark. I mean, I heard that a lot growing up.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did you ever have a Selma moment? And, and just to clarify for everybody, uh, of course, Selma was a pretty famous protest that happened in the South uh, related to Dr. King. Did you ever have your, your kind of Selma moment or, or was that not part of your,
1: your life? Uh, the church, which is really fundamental in my family and a lot of Black families, uh, not per se that exact type of moment, but I do remember uh, going to church on Sundays and having the preacher organize uh, marchers. So my parents uh, absolutely went south to, to protest um, segregation, um, other, other members of our community as well. So not in the community, but certainly having the awareness of other people's experience and being told, you know, you're pretty fortunate to live where you live. Uh, You don't have to worry about being physically harmed. The psychological impacts are something that everybody in the community worked against in terms of us ever thinking that we were less than. So I think it it is uh, a difference in terms of snapshots. Uh, but it was uh really a great childhood when I think about it, from the perspective of knowing who I was, having parents who, who were very clear, and then having a whole community that created that same uh level of confidence mm-hmm.
0: so let, let's uh let's jump to current day uh you've had the advantage of living on both sides of the border what are you uh looking at the u s um understanding that you haven 't lived there in thirty years? What do you think has changed since segregation, and and I guess, what hasn't?
1: Um, I think probably from my perspective, it's really about the loss of community for young Black people. When you look at what's going on in the U.S. today, most Black communities, uh, depending on income level, have been pretty decimated in terms of those connections. So we weren't allowed to shirk because we had other people always over our shoulder, but it's not the same in the US today for other young black people. So, when you think about the idea of what integration means, it's supposed to be about assimilation, theoretically, into white society. Mm -hmm. Um, That flies in the face of the idea of having this core identity, this core community, and having people say, well, now that things are integrated, it's better, we can go to white doctors, we can go to white lawyers, that type of thing. So that a fundamental connection, I think uh, is part of what's been lost. Um, Integration um, and separate but equal, uh, because I think again, we've come back to that. Uh, I really believe that there's less opportunity because of racism and more overall poverty. And again, as I said, the things that really made, for me, made me understand what my connections were, the rich history that I come from. Um, Young Blacks today have less opportunity. And in fact, my judgment is that in some cases, they see themselves as less valuable based on feeling um, that they're a target and that there are some things that really have not changed.
0: So I want to come back to separate but but equal, but I'm going to come back. I just want to ask you a kind of an obvious question that some people are thinking. Why does it matter? You say that the, you know, young black people don't have a a sense of community. Why do you need that? Why do they need that?
1: Well, if you think about the magnitude and velocity of change, there are all these things coming at you. Um, I really believe you need a core. You need a foundation of understanding who you are and what your heritage is. And it gets usurped. I mean, if if you look at what's going on now, um, even if we use uh, Black music as an example, Mm -hmm. and particularly rap, which I'm not that fond of, I'll admit. (laughs) But if you look at it, uh, again, all of those things that became a part of Black identity are now being usurped by a lot of whites. Mm -hmm. And so it is this idea of who am I? What's my connection? and the representation. I think there's a very deliberate representation. Um, If you look at arts, you look at music, you look at sports, that blacks are only good at that. And even that, it falls into question when you say somebody else of a different race has now taken on that mantle. So I think it is an issue in terms of levels of confidence and being willing to jump off a cliff without a net. Because
0: if you don't have that confidence, you can't. Right. So let's talk about separate but equal. Going back to its intended purpose, how has it changed?
1: Um, I think it hasn't changed in a lot of communities, and I think that's driven by poverty. The bias or the stereotype was that, you know, back in the 50s when things were segregated, that the schools that we went to, everything that we did essentially as black people was inferior to whites. Uh, but not so much. I mean, I uh, started in, at an integrated school um, in grade five. And the shock to the teachers was as they started to execute their lesson plans, all of the black kids who were now a part of their class, we all looked at each other and said, we've already done that. And so oh. it was uh, a shock, I think, for the education system as it existed at the time to recognize that it wasn't separate but equal, we were in fact ahead of a lot of the white kids. So, it, you know, that having that historical context, what we're seeing today, and I think what drives this is what I suggested before, and that is the idea that to be a part of society as a whole means that there are certain things or certain expectations of identity that you have to give up to be a part of the overall community. So I think what you're seeing is a trend line, particularly in the U.S., Of young Blacks saying, I'm missing that community connection. And so what we're seeing is people start to come together again um, and segregate themselves from whites. So there's this limited interaction, if you will, and a certain amount of unwillingness for both groups to learn about each other. I mean, the other thing that I would say about Missouri is that during that time period, uh, and still today, uh, there, it's very distinct in terms of identity. So you, you weren't looking at a lot of ethnocultural groups, you were either black, white, or Jewish in St. Louis during that time period. And if I think about um, St. Louis itself, uh, I still see that separation. The difference is economic drivers now so my black community suddenly became integrated um over the last 10 years or so just driven on housing prices and so suddenly you had whites coming back into the community because they could afford the houses so but i still see this need on the part of black people to say where's my community where are my connectors
0: sure So let's uh, bring it up here to the north. Uh, What do you see the difference being in terms of the Canadian landscape?
1: Well, I think the patterns of racism have some similarities, but I just think they're less overt. If we use the experience of Indigenous people in parallel to other people of color, um, I think those are the patterns. It's where uh, individuals and groups of people are devalued, um, and the attempt to get rid of people whose very land we live on. Um, Also, other groups seem to be targeted. I think it's a question of identity. We are much less overt in terms of most of our behavior as Canadians. Um, But I think If you look at uh, the groups that, in fact, are targets, um, what I'm seeing now are two, two particular targets other than indigenous people are East Indians and Muslims. And you look at how they're being portrayed in media. You look at the idea that they are being othered quite specifically. Those patterns seem very familiar to me. So the other piece of this is the idea of exceptionalism. So I think one of the things that we see, in particular in the U.S. as opposed to Canada, is that there's this idea that Americans are always—they always see themselves as being exceptions—or and they really buy into this idea that we are superior. Um, it's my experience as somebody who's been in this country for a long time, and as a Canadian, and who's worked in DNI for a long time, is. We don't see ourselves from that same exceptionalism perspective, and I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, we have pockets, and certainly um, one quick story I'll share with you is my experience of doing DNI training in Chatham and London, Ontario. Um, It's probably the only place that I can really pinpoint where somebody really wanted to make an issue out of my race. And so I I went to do this learning program, and uh, the person who was running the program gave me a heads up and said, there were a couple of people that this was a uh, required program. There were a couple of people in the program who were very upset at the idea of being taught by a black person. So this was in Chatham, Ontario. And how long ago? Uh, Ten years ago. Wow. So it wasn't that long ago. So it is. There are still pockets, um, but I've, you know, I really sort of lived a charmed life, if you will, in terms of my U.S. experience versus my Canadian uh, um, experience. When I first started traveling, when I first arrived in Toronto, and I first started traveling across the country one of the first questions I asked colleagues is, is it safe for me to go to these places that you want me to go? And the people I was speaking with looked at me as if I'd grown another head and said, what are you talking about? And so the idea that it didn't even occur to them that it would be an issue for somebody like who looked like me uh, was a real bonus for me.
0: Yeah, of course. No, I, I, you know, I guess the question is, do you, do you still have to ask that question today about your safety? Is that a question that you know, you're asking in Canada in particular?
1: No, I never ask that question. And uh, the thing I, I can share with you is uh, traveling back to the U.S. in current time, I feel the need to ask that question even more. It is uh, always a concern. It's always where am I going? Um, what, who am I meeting with? Where do, where do I need to be? Um, the hesitation uh, when I'm in the U.S. about renting a car. And where I have to go if I'm driving a rental car? And is that going to be an issue? So a lot of the lessons that my parents taught me early when I'm traveling in the U.S. in current times, still apply. So that's a sad thing to be able to have to say.
0: Yeah, but you're not experiencing that here in Canada.
1: Definitely not. Definitely not. I mean, it's, it it has been amazing to me because um, if you grew up during the time period that I grew up in, uh, there are certain tests that you put people through, they may not be aware that you're doing it, but you're aware. And other black people, if they heard those tests, I'm not sharing what they are, um, would immediately identify, but I don't feel the need to do that. This is home for me. And um, part of the reason that it feels like home for me is that I genuinely feel that the majority of people that I meet and wherever I travel accept me for who I am and don't expect me to be somebody else. And that's a real gift.
0: Okay, now you have to share one of the tests because you're like, <laughs> it's, it's, this is like the secret black handshake.
1: It is like the secret black handshake. <laughs>
0: okay, what? You got to give us an example.
1: Uh, okay. I'll use the handshake as an example. Um, and that is, uh, watching when I first meet somebody, uh, watching their nonverbals first of all, and then watching how quickly they extend their hand. Is there any hesitation there? And you can really, if you're used to looking for it, you can really see it. And it tells you a lot about where that person is with who you are. So that's a mini one. That's the only one I'm giving you.
0: Interesting. Okay. I'm going to have to keep an eye (laughs) out for that. So Renee, um, how has all of your experience, both growing up in the segregated U.S. and moving to Canada, how has it affected your life today?
1: Oh, on a number of different levels. So where I came from Really gave me the confidence and the surety of who I am, and I think I mentioned this before, um, and also life lessons about how to conduct yourself. Um, to uh, i you know, I'm, I was really fortunate that early on, my parents told me that if I let other people define what I can do and what I can't do, that's my problem. It's on me. I think the other thing that they taught me was forgiveness for people who may not necessarily want to treat me respectfully, or for people who exhibit racism, that what, you know, the lesson that they taught us was that it's not part of somebody's natural DNA. People have to be taught that. So I think without that guidance, uh, I probably wouldn't have the confidence to talk to you about these issues that we're talking about today. The other piece of that is probably I wouldn't have the passion for my work that I do. Um, and that really is that fundamental belief taught to me early on—that nobody should be excluded or disrespected based on who they are.
0: That it—that it, takes a, an incredible generosity of heart for your parents to have taught you way of of uh, respecting people that don't respect you. Yeah.
1: But I think if you look at Black people overall, you're going to see a sense of forbearance and grace, which I think hardly ever gets pointed out. People just assume that they can treat uh, Black people any way they want and will just put up with it. But I think um, what's a bonus and what's a gift about having that insight is that you don't see black people t- you know, doing to, to other people, what has been done to them. And I think it's a part of who we are. It's I think it's a part of the pride in who we are, that where we came from, you know, the original mother earth Africa is about dignity and grace. It's not about getting even. Mm-hmm. And I think Um, I think I feel very blessed to be a part of the group that I'm a part of because of that.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, I I think about when uh, President Obama was elected and the U.S. was, uh, I heard the term, post-racist. You know, do you think we're post-racist? Do you think we're?
1: Not at all. Not at all. I think, you know, We talk a lot about unconscious bias in our work, and I think uh, it's still very much, as we know, very much entrenched. But I also think that there isn't a collective vision of what post-racial is. I think Obama was an exception as many black people are made to be. I think all of the Obamas were, are viewed as exceptions. And I think if you look at what happens in the US in 2020, and you look at the fact that there are more black candidates running, I think you will still see that they are treated as exceptions rather than this is what basic no- black people are right. like.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What uh, What lessons do you think we have learned through all of this? Uh, and, and what should we have learned? What, what did we miss? Um, wow. Uh,
1: I think what we should have learned is that race is a false social construct and that the only reason that we talk about race is because of the genesis and that it was used to justify economic wealth for whites and oppression for non-whites. I still don't think we've learned that that we still put so much emphasis. I mean, we're having conversation about the evolution of race. Um, our identities matter, but, you know, in our skin color, our uh, group identity matters to us. It, it says who we are, but it doesn't determine our worthiness. And I don't think we're yeah. past that. I think we're still um, in that place. I think what we did learn is that a lot of racism is connected to values and upbringing and other societal influences, um, and that we have to be vigilant and be willing to learn how to overcome the racial bias that each of us has. I mean, mean, it's not, um, I think, unique to a particular group. Uh, Whites are not uh, the only groups that hold racial bias, so do blacks. So it is important to think about and remind ourselves that people are individuals. And the moment we start to generalize um, about beliefs about race and perceptions about race, uh, we're usually in a lot of trouble. I think one of the things i would learned is that those snapshots are not about me as an individual. They really are about the group as a whole. And I think that's something that we did learn, but we often uh, sometimes let go. And so I think it's important to bring the spotlight on to that.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it is a, um, a complete myth that, of course, that only white people are racist um, mm-hmm. and that Canadians can't be racist. I think yeah, race is absolutely. A, um, particularly when you look at how brains work, um, it, it is a natural occurrence and it's one we have to fight against. Is there any advice that you give to young people, particularly young Black people entering the workforce?
1: Yeah, I do. I have a couple of people that I mentor. Um, But I think that probably the most important thing is the lesson that I learned, and that is being clear about who you are. So putting yourself out there, being willing to be your genuine self means that you also have to believe in yourself and who you are. Um, I think also it's about, Uh, giving other people the benefit of the doubt until they give you a reason not to, and never, ever be disrespectful of another person or accept it when it comes to you. I mean, I think this goes back to what I suggested before about the idea of dignity and having that dignity be on demonstration every time you deal with another person. Um, It's also about the willingness to work hard. Um, You know, I think, If we look at how people approach, particularly young people, approach work now, um, they're leveraging what they know, uh, but seem less willing to roll their sleeves up. Uh, And this is, I'm going to apologize for the generalization here, but seem less willing to roll their sleeves up and really work hard. So it is important. And I think the other thing is um, to call out when people are being disrespectful uh, without using your guilt and blame as a hammer. Cause I think mm. it gets in the way of actually being able to hear another person and have them hear you. If, if all they see uh, when they interact with you is a wagging finger.
0: Right. Yeah. People don't receive that message as well as, as uh, one might think. All right. So let's wrap it up with some fun questions. We ask the same questions of all of our guests. Who are your heroes? Oh, There's
1: so many. Um,
0: It's only a 30-minute podcast.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, I have to start with Martin Luther King. Of course. uh, Rosa Parks, the Obamas. But uh, another person uh, is Jane Elliott, who I talk about Mm -hmm. a lot in my work. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I also want to give you uh, the women in my family. So Mildred Bazile White, Ida Bazile, Mildred... Bazille White is my grandmother. Ida Bazille is my dad's older sister. Clara Fleming was my mother's mother. Those are really my heroes. Amelda Wyatt was my kindergarten teacher. And to this day, I can still hear her voice and her lessons in my head. Um, I'm very lucky because she really uh, said that I had the knowledge and skills to do anything that I wanted to do so another person who reinforced my
0: self-worth that's lovely so what is your biggest pet peeve
1: <sighs> there's so many i'm just going to pick one <laughs> <laughs> i think it's people who take pride in being colorblind
0: oh yes
1: it's it's you know people are raised on this idea of not seeing color and it's just you know, foot tapping, frustrating, when people take pride in that. And um, hopefully being able to have a conversation with people about why being colorblind is not the most positive thing that you can do when you're interacting with somebody who's a person of color. That's Mm -hmm. probably my pet peeve.
0: Well, we've been raised to, and I remember thinking, learning this as a child growing up here in Toronto, but you didn't want to see uh, color as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the best of intentions are well, I don't see color, uh, but uh, you know the truth of the matter is our brains do see color. We do, and it's not a bad thing. No, yeah. but we've been raised on this idea
1: of equality, and if we buy that, the idea that you're somehow individualizing people flies in the face of everybody being the same.
0: Absolutely. So last question, what is your happiest, guiltiest pleasure?
1: Ooh, I'm not sure I want to share that with you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just me. No one else is listening.
1: No one else is listening? Okay, fine. Um, I think, um, and this is going to sound perverse, but uh, it's rarely giving other people what they expect.
0: Oh, okay. I need you to explain that.
1: It's... uh, you know, you have your own identity and uh, you think about how you navigate through the world. And when I encounter, every person I encounter is a new individual and it's interacting with them and beginning to to understand what their formulation is of me and having... Um, that establishes a certain of expectat- set of expectations about how I'm supposed to be. And in a lot of cases, my guilty pleasure is not giving them that.
0: Oh, I like it. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how I can work that into my world. I'm going to like tell my husband I'm going to cook chicken and then s- serve him lentils or something. <laughs>
1: Uh, food and also just discourse, you know, that, um, you know, sometimes I find it plays out when you're having a conversation with somebody and they expect you to be a particular way or have a certain perspective. Um, I've lived long enough to be able to argue both sides of any point. And so sometimes I take great pleasure in something I don't necessarily believe in, but being able to argue that point vociferously and really sort of shock and awe the other person.
0: You just described politics.
1: Yeah, there's (laughs) no way I could be a politician.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Renee, for joining us today. This has been a great conversation, and I really appreciate you sharing. Thank you
1: so much for asking me.
0: Race and racism is a tough conversation under the best of circumstances. It tends to strike a very emotional chord, both from the person experiencing the racism and the person accused of it. Truthfully, I don't think we talk enough about racism in Canada. Because we're Canadian, we can't be racist. And that is what I like to call horse excrement. Of course we can be racist. We're human. Just because we're painfully polite about it doesn't mean we're not subject to the same bias that is the root of all racism. But we don't talk about it. Instead, we pretend it isn't happening and stick our heads into the proverbial sand. But that doesn't mean that things are getting better. If you pay attention to what's going on south of the border politically, and in fact, here in the Great White North as well, we have a lot of work to do to get to the point where people of different ethno-cultural backgrounds are on equal footing. I love when people talk about not seeing color and to be clear, I'm not talking about the actual condition of colorblindness, which interestingly impacts 8% of men and only one half of 1% of women. True fact. Studies have shown that our brains categorize a whole host of information about a person, including our perceptions of a person's race or ethnic background, simply by looking at them. So if you can see, you can see color. Or at least you can see what you perceive to be a person's ethnocultural background. Seeing race and ethnicity isn't a bad thing. It's an opportunity to acknowledge that person, to celebrate them, and get to know the lived experience of someone else. It's an opportunity to learn. That's all for today's episode of Talking to Canadians. Thanks for listening, and thank you to my guest Renee Basil-Jones for sharing her story. Make sure you've subscribed to this podcast through your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to stay up to date with everything CCDI is up to by visiting our website at ccdi.ca. Thanks again, and I'll be talking to you again soon, Canada.